C.S. Lewis left an indelible mark on literature and for sure on all of our schools. And few individuals have dug as deeply into his world as my guest today, who brings to life some fascinating discoveries about C.S. Lewis that you'll want to hear. So stick around for this episode of Basecamp Live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Well, welcome to Basecamp Live. Hey, Kelly, I have a question for you. In fact, I'm going to give you a trivia question today. Oh, boy. Come on, you do some trivia. See all if right. I'm ready. Okay. Uh, the date is November 22nd, 1963. That'd be f- about 55 years ago. Okay. Um, the Something happened. Um, there were three individuals of, I think, quite historical significance who all died the same day. And I'll give you a hint. One was C.S. Lewis. All right. So okay. I, but, I know two of them. Okay. So who's the other one that died the same day? So John F. Kennedy, yep. President Kennedy. Yep. And there's an author in there somewhere that I know I'm missing. That would be Aldous Huxley. Huxley, yep. Okay. Yeah. So, so Huxley, um, you know, I was going to say, November 22nd, um, I wasn't there. I wasn't quite that old. But, I was going to uh, say. <laughs> um, <laughs> those of you who are listening who were there, you probably weren't thinking about uh, anything but Kennedy's assassination and what mm. a tragedy for the nation. But on that same day, C.S. Lewis mm. um, um goes on to his glory and and Aldous Huxley who wrote Brave New World and it's interesting um, in kind of commemoration of Lewis's life and his his uh, impact on so many of us today I, I say in the interview I don't know that there's anybody who um, probably had so much influence other than maybe the Apostle Paul in the kind of modern church um, mm-hmm. you hear a lot of Lewis He's quoted a giant yeah a giant man so we get to interview Diana Glyer she's a PhD professor at Azusa Pacific and she got an uh, an kind of a, a bug, I guess. Can you say got a bug? I guess sure. so. That sounds like she's sick. She didn't get a bug. She's She was intrigued with the idea. We've all heard about the Inklings. There was this amazing uh, gathering of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. They called it the Inklings. They they met it actually was there this summer at a little pub in England called the um, the Child and the Eagle, and, and they, they worked together. But no one had ever really dug into the question of how much influence did they have over one another's lives. Did Tolkien just go write Lord of the Rings and Lewis mm-hmm. wrote... Um, the Chronicles of Narnia just because they're creative people or did that interaction in community affect something much deeper and actually change the writing and so nobody had proven this she went over did a ton of work dug through files and talked to people and came back and wrote a book called The Company They Keep C.S. Lewis and Tolkien The Writers and Community and then another book just out Bandersnatch which I understand you know Bandersnatch is it sounds like a bad itch, but no, the Bandersnatch is actually <laughs> like a dragon. C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, and the creative collaboration of the Inklings. And I just want to say, if you've this interview was super uh, exciting to me. It made me want to dive back in and read mm-hmm. more. But the point of it, which ties right into our schools, is we need to be in community. And these guys absolutely impacted one another. And none of those books we just described would be here today in the form they're in were it not for that iron sharpening iron going on. I think this is such a good message for our culture right now, right? We are so polarized and we're so willing to go not interact with people in any real tangible, tactile way. And we're seeing the fruits of some of that culturally. And so this is such a good example. Yeah. And and again, I don't want to give away the whole, the whole podcast, but it's interesting because these guys weren't always polite with each other. Sure. They're like, okay, that was really bad. You You can just hear in their harsh British, Lewis, what are you thinking? I mean, today we'd be offended and we'd all have 
But they were committed to they each were other. Committed. And, they and did they it, cared about each they other. They created a safe space yep. to really be <laughs> maybe not. Anyhow, it worked. So hey, let's jump in with this interview with Diana Goyer. Welcome to Basecamp Live here in the studio with David Goodwin, president of the ACCS, and we're on the line with Diana Glyer. How are you, Diana? I'm doing great. Thanks. Boy, it is exciting to have you here and to uh, know that we've got, it's the 55th anniversary of C.S. Lewis's passing, uh, November 22nd. Um, okay, quiz for you, Dave. What else, who else died on November 22nd of 1963? That would be John Kennedy and I believe Hutchins? Uh, uh, no. Aldous? Um, Aldous Huxley. There Huxley, go. there we go. Yeah, and so I guess Lewis's <clears throat> death was somewhat overshadowed by these other giants that died that day, but uh, it's hard to believe it's been yeah. 55 years. It was interesting that some of Lewis's own friends didn't know he had died for several days. And I wonder if there isn't some way in which that was something of the... A gift of God uh, mm. for Lewis to have been able to sort of leave this earth and enter heaven quietly yeah. and mm. in an unnoticed sort of way. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Well, C.S., I don't think you can go far in church circles today and not have, uh, I'm, I'm thinking Lewis gets quoted at least as much as the Apostle Paul um, in most churches. So <laughs> I think that's true. What is, yeah. I want to hear more about your, your research in the book, but just the, kind of the first question, what's, why does Lewis have such an enduring quality to him? I think that Lewis has an enduring quality for lots and lots of reasons, and one of them was his own conviction that anything that is not eternal is eternally out of date. Mm. And so mm. he put a lot of emphasis on those things that have eternal significance. I think the other thing is that he didn't get distracted by minor matters, by minor issues, right? He, in mere Christianity, is so intentional about saying, let's focus on the things that we hold in common. Let's not get distracted by details, the side issues, but let's stay really, really focused on the things uh, yeah. that are most essential. Um, ultimately, I think the reason that Lewis endures the way that he does is because he was somewhat unique in his ability to be fully alive, both in his mind, in his intellectual or rational capacity, but also in his imagination. Mm. And I think about what it means to be fully alive, to be fully engaged with both of these aspects of what it means to be human, right? Yeah. To be thinking, but also to be feeling, to be loving, to be sensitive to beauty, uh, to be engaged with the imagina imaginative faculty. So how do we, uh, in a Lewisian sort of way, do more, yeah. right, to, uh, to be intellectually really, really rigorous and also have that sense of delight and yeah. discovery uh, in terms of awakening our affections? That's a great answer. And I think that, that, that wonderful balance between he wasn't just the stodgy professor he was he was he could outwit outthink probably anyone of his day, but he was just rich, vibrant, colorful, creative, and this and this person that you just would want to spend time with, from what I can tell. You know, it's interesting thinking about so as classical Christian folk folks. I think a lot of times again we almost think of C.S. Lewis as kind of this poster child of what we want all of our kids to become in some ways. It's just this very well-rounded uh, individual. How do you see classical Christian education from your research being a part of what uh, formed and made C.S. Lewis? One of the advantages that C.S. Lewis had is he grew up in a home that was full of books and he was reading from an early age. He's also writing stories along with his brother Warren Lewis from an early age, but it was the breadth of reading, I think, and his natural curiosity about a wide number of topics that really helped. He was considered by many people to be the best read person of his generation. Hmm. 
reading uh, very, very widely, very, very broadly. And yet he had a really interesting attitude toward education. And that's that it is, he, he said that if you could do one thing to improve education, what you should do is you should teach less and teach it better. Mm. So even though he had exposure to a really broad range of important ideas, important thinkers, classical works, he was convinced that you really need to linger on those key ideas and key questions and go in some significant depth, not being superficial, mm. but really grappling with the key ideas in those texts. Yeah. So he, um, as, a, as he was preparing for college, read a lot of the classics and of course uh, as a student at oxford studied uh, history philosophy um, had a degree in greats and also in english literature yeah so for you personally just because i want to get into some of the the research you've done so you, your own in your own fascination with lewis did you grow up reading uh, <laughs> chronicles of narnia what was that what drew you into his world so I became a Christian when I was in high school through the efforts of a group called Campus Life. Hmm. And about that time, um, a lot of my friends were really excited about this Lord of the Rings. This Hobbit thing was very popular back then. Mm -hmm. And so I discovered Tolkien before I discovered Lewis. But once you finished Lord of the Rings <laughs> back then, what else is there to read? What else is there that has that texture and that that aroma of goodness and that draw of these great themes of good and evil and what it means to risk everything for something that you believe in. So from Tolkien, I discovered Lewis. I read the Space Trilogy, was my first exposure to his work. Out of the Silent Planet blew me away wow. because of the way that it captured something of what it means to have an intimate uh, relationship with God and to have, I guess I would have to say, a cosmic perspective on spiritual things. Mm. So that's how I got to uh, got interested in Lewis personally. But what really uh, got me super excited was when I discovered that C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were friends. And for me, that was like discovering that Mark Twain and Shakespeare were personal <laughs> friends. I mean, it just blew my mind to think that these two authors, whose work I loved so much, would sit down and have a conversation together. And I became wildly curious to know what did they say to one another when they met? And what difference did those conversations make mm. to the calling of Christ in their, in their lives? And so that's when I started my investigation really in terms of what was their friendship like? What was the nature of it? And then what difference did it make to the books that they were writing and to the vocation that they experienced? Well, it's been said of you that no one knows more of the inner workings of the Inklings than you. So I'm, I'm excited <laughs> to, so you, you really took this, uh, what, what I think was really a challenge for you, because there were certainly a lot of naysayers out there saying, well, Lewis and Tolkien, you know, they, they were friends, they had some tea together, but they really operated very independently. And you said, I don't think that's really the case. They actually were highly influential in each other's lives. So how did that, how did that discovery go? Well, you have to imagine that this is in high school, right? I find out they're friends. I'm absolutely blown away by this idea. And I read what was at the time the leading book about the Inklings. And that's a book called The Inklings by a, a fellow named Humphrey Carpenter. And Humphrey Carpenter argues in that book very strenuously that the members of this group had no influence on each other. So I'm an American and I'm female and I'm a high school student. And I look at these claims and I say, wait a minute. These guys met twice a week for m more than 17 years, 
and they read their roughest rough drafts out loud to each other, talked about them, and then crafted the next chapters of their work after these interactions. I think there's something going on here. I think that there's a reason that this group is enduring. So, and, and just, so that's, yeah, and just yeah. so everybody who's listening kind of knows what we're talking about. So Inklings were, who all were in the Inklings? Oh, great, yeah. yeah. Um, so Lewis and Tolkien started uh, in 1929 exchanging their manuscripts with each other. And then out of that exchange, they started inviting other people to come to what uh, started on Thursday nights, reading manuscripts out loud and talking about them late into the night. Mm. These guys were late, uh, late night um, night elves, right? So they would get together at about 9 p.m. and stay up till two or three in the morning, reading the things that they were working on and critiquing them together. Yeah, and they yeah. did this very, very faithfully week after week. And they'd meet there at the Eagle and Child Pub, right? It wasn't that the... That was on Tuesdays, right? Okay. That was for more informal conversation. That Tuesday meeting was very in, in very important for a number of reasons, but one of them is that it was a more open kind okay. of group. So students came to that. There were women who were involved in the Tuesday get-togethers. Yeah. But the Thursday night was really... I would think of it as a writer's group. It was a okay. writer's critique group, and that's where a lot of their yeah. ideas were forged. Well, I want to explore really, again, the, the nature of, of this interaction that you saw and the effect that it has. Because, again, if, we're, if we believe, and I think it's quite defendable and true, that Lewis and Tolkien and others really had a classical Christian education, and probably one of the finest anyone could have in the world, this is really an example of this education at work. And when I look at our schools, and our, especially in our upper school, our rhetoric classes, it's kind of a little bit of a Eagle and Child pub moment, I think, that happens sometimes in our classrooms. And so why don't we take a quick break and we'll come right back with Diana Glyer and hear more about your discovery and uh, the, the hours and hours I know you spent reading firsthand accounts and, and recorded uh, discussions that went on between some of these greatest writers in the world. It's really a fascinating perspective. We'll be right back here on Basecamp Live. <laughs> The first wave of Generation Z is entering college this year, but little has been known about this next generation until now. In partnership with Impact 360 Institute, Barna has just released a landmark study of the leading edge of Gen Z, teenagers from 13 to 17 years old. What is their relationship to faith, to parents, to institutions? How have culture and society shaped them? How can we better equip them, reach them, and help them follow Jesus with confidence in this world? Gen Z is a must-read report for pastors, teachers, and parents as you help to Tomorrow's Christian leaders grow. To learn more about Gen Z or to purchase the book, visit whoisgenz.com. Well, welcome back to Basecamp Live here in the studio with David Goodwin talking with Diana Glyer about her work on the studying of the Inklings. And, and Diana, you have written, I guess, a number of years ago, the book The Company They Keep, which was a uh, looking at C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and the writers in, the, in this community, and then of late, uh, Bandersnatched, uh, which uh, is in subtitled C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and the Creative Collaboration of the Inklings. So uh, we were saying over the break, if one imagines a bunch of guys in tweed jackets in a pub or a cram together, it sounds like, well, that's maybe kind of boring. Like these guys were probably just all geeking out over each other's, you know, part participle phrases or something. And, you know, was this really... Um, a, a dynamic in, in, in a place that you would want to be. I actually had the privilege this summer of going in the Eagle and Child pub, pub and it's actually a pretty small little room 
there in that pub. The food's really good. I could see why they'd stick around for that. But uh, but tell us more about your your discovery of of the nature of this relationship and why this community was so effective in actually impacting each other's books. The, the books that we read today would not have been the same had they not met. Is that right? Yeah, I believe very strongly that the books that we have wouldn't have been written, that we wow. wouldn't have the Chronicles of Narnia, we wouldn't have the Lord of the Rings. And part of the reason for that is the wide variety of ways that these men uh, interacted. So when we think about what's best in education, we think about this uh, exposure to new ideas and this opportunity to grapple with other thinkers on why these ideas matter, not only what we believe, but why we believe it. And we think about things like a Socratic seminar and the importance of being in that arena and allowing different individuals to say, this is what I think, here's my perspective, and here's why, here's how I think that through, and becoming increasingly sensitive to one another in terms of the reasons for why we believe what we do, being able to understand those, think them through and articulate them. So what the Inklings are doing, what Lewis Tolkien and this circle of friends are extending their education over a lifetime hmm. by making a commitment to continue to get together and allow iron to sharpen iron as they explore ideas. So in these sessions where they're critiquing manuscripts, it really was sort of a no holds barred kind of thing. I mean, they were brutal with each other. They absolutely rejected some ideas. I know that when uh, C.S. Lewis wrote his autobiographical Surprise by Joy, one of the Inklings said, you just can't say that about the schools you attended. And there was a, a flurry of debate about so many aspects of it. I know that when Lewis was beginning tentative steps toward the manuscript that became the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Tolkien absolutely rejected it. He said that story is as bad as bad can be. And so they weren't getting together to just sort of pat one another on the back, mm. although there was encouragement and there was praise and there was appreciation. There was always this, uh, also this kind of pressure to finish things there was opposing they were very frank to say to one another that's a great idea but this isn't working mm. and so many times lewis's impact on tolkien was very very simple it was you're better than this mm. you can do better please do better and tolkien would take his manuscript home he'd revise extensively and would in fact improve it dramatically simply because he had somebody who cared well i was going to say you know as you're saying this i think what a stark contrast to the environment most students are in today and and certainly in the broader school systems in our country where there is uh, there's such uh, I think fear of actually saying anything that's critical or helpful. I mean, I, I can't, you know, I'm imagining to what you're saying, if we were sitting, there's a fly on the wall in the Eagle and Child pub, we might actually think, well, gosh, that was, that was really harsh. That was really uh, intense. And, and yet Lewis didn't have a, a trigger moment and have to run out of the pub. He somehow endured and stayed there and, and they refined each other. Um, so, so, well, and yeah. I think, I think there's a great lesson in the fact that Lewis didn't listen to Tolkien's critique <laughs> he he published one of the greatest he kept going one yeah. of the greatest children's book of all time and Tolkien of course one of the greatest works of English literature I think yeah. of all time both being critical of each other there right. was no harm in the critique yeah when I think Diana you talk in in your in the Bandersnatch book which by the way folks might what is a Bandersnatch you want to explain that that's actually a, I guess a, a dragon 
Uh, well, sure. It's a it's a character from Lewis Carroll's poem Jabberwocky. Yeah. Right? Beware the Bandersnatch, my son. The claws yeah. that bite, uh, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. And so it's a phrase from that. And the uh, application to Lewis and Tolkien comes in because someone asked Lewis once whether he had had any influence on Tolkien. And he laughed, Lewis mm. laughed, and he said, no, nobody ever influenced Tolkien. You might as well try to influence a bandersnatch. <laughs> well, that idea was taken uh, for granted as kind of mm. the final word on it until I started digging a little bit deeper. Okay. Lewis didn't mean that in the sort of comprehensive way that we take it. He was kind of making a joke. And what he meant was that just because someone gave advice didn't mean that it was automatically received with applause mm. there was a lot of pushback sure and and that is what you would expect among these very talented thinkers well again i think in in contrasting both just modern american education and then what we love about classical christian education if you come and tour most of our upper schools and these schools around the country you find these in our case you know large oak tables and students are sitting around and they're willing to engage each other uh, respectfully, but but with intensity and passion. And I know in, in the Bandersnatch book, you, you talk about uh, this idea of, of criticizing but not silencing. And, and I love this, if I just read a, a quote in here, um, thinking of the Inklings, when they encountered, uh, or when you encounter dismissal, um, or sorry, when, when creative people encounter thoughtful critique, they feel empowered, but when you encounter dismissal, uh, you stop taking risk and you shut down. So we're not advocating. I mean, I, I think probably I would have felt shut down by <laughs> Tolkien or Lewis if they critiqued me. <laughs> I would probably just leave. But um, <laughs> but for, for for but you know within the safe space, if you will, of that environment, they were they were readily accepting that criticism. And and again, it's just not what we have today. And I think it's something that we aspire to. And these t guys are amazing models of it. Yeah, absolutely. So. Well, I think, you know, before we went on air, you cited, and I'd like to get your comment on this, but the, the idea that Aristotle, or at least the quote is often uh, attributed to him, that a, the sign of an educated mind is one that can um, entertain a thought without embracing it. So right. maybe commenting on, on, on the Socratic discourse in that context. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really important idea. I am intrigued by this concept of intellectual hospitality. It's not my phrase, but it's one that I think is a really good way to describe what it is we do when we're encountering ideas that are new to us. When we have a guest in our home, right, that uh, guest and host, as Homer taught us, have certain responsibilities toward one another. And so when I am entertaining an idea, I want to understand it. I want to be courteous toward it. But that does not necessarily mean that I have to adopt it or have that move in, that person move in permanently mm. um, and become a kind of part of the fixture. So how can we do a better job as we encounter ideas that are foreign to us of simply saying, I have a different perspective on that but I'm very interested in knowing why you believe what you do and pushing a little harder on what is underneath those good ideas and doing a little better job of trying to listen and understand one another. And boy, wouldn't that be welcome again in, in a, in a culture day, especially, I mean, you're in a, you're in a college environment, but so many colleges today that you know, civil discourse is gone and it's just, you know, who can yell the loud loudest and, and accuse. And we've lost just basic communication, civility or, intellectual swordplay, as they would have called it. Yeah. So, Yeah, absolutely. And there is a certain kind of pleasure in really evaluating ideas with that kind of sharpness of mind. Mm, sure. 
So uh, as you, you know, as you think about other discoveries you made, and we've talked a good bit, we've just got a few minutes left, but just I'm curious, <laughs> so many things we could talk about, but other things, other examples of how the, the inklings iron was sharpening each other. What are some other things that, I mean, broadly, we may not have the books today. What else was perhaps changed because of this level of engagement and community? There's all kinds of evidence in the text itself that if you look at the comments that the Inklings made on one another's manuscripts, we have evidence in letters, for example, of certain conversations they have. And you can see the evidence of that kind of playing through in the books that they wrote. But when I think about iron sharpening iron and this struggle uh, and challenge that was characteristic of the group, one of the things that I love to, to reflect on is when Tolkien first shared a poem with Lewis very, very early in their relationship and before the Inklings actually get start, got started. And Tolkien gave Lewis the manuscript of a poem called The Lay of Lathian. Lewis read it and wrote a half a page note saying that it had been a long time since he had read anything so wonderful. Mm. And then there was a PS on this little note that he wrote, this little thank you note. And the PS said, um, further comments, including quibbles about individual lines, will come later. Well, those quibbles ran to 14 pages, single-spaced. And Lewis wow. went through the poem in incre incredible detail and made all kinds of critiques. But here's the, here's the thing. Tolkien appreciated the first note, but it was the second note that he prized all of his life because he had found someone who valued his work enough to give it that kind of thorough attention, to give it the best possible attention. And so the fact that the second one was negative or critical wasn't the issue. It was a demonstration that here was someone who cares enough to actually roll up their sleeves and go in depth to give feedback on something that was important. What a great, what a great yeah, example! We're, yeah. we're told that uh, the Lord chastens those whom he he loves, and that you know clearly <laughs> Lewis loved that work, that poem, That's enough right. to spend the time chastening it. Mm. That's good. exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, Diana, thank you so much. It, uh, time is always short on our on our show, but this has been a really good encouragement. I think uh, as we reflect on the impact that C.S. Lewis and Tolkien have made. It's just n numerous examples of, of what they, the legacy that they've left, but to know a little bit more now about what it would have been like to, to watch them working together and to see the, the output of that relationship is really encouraging. So thank you for your work. And uh, what, what's, oh, thank you. what's next? What, what next big question are you going to go pursue? To, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm working next on a little bit more information about C.S. Lewis's brother, Warren Lewis. Mm. And he's figure that we don't know very much about. He's someone who was a member of the Inklings and very influential in Lewis's life. And I'm excited to have a new book coming out in, a, in about a year about Warren Lewis and a little bit about his own spiritual journey. Fantastic. Well, we'd love to have you back on and hear uh, more of what you discover there. If folks want to uh, read more about you and your works, what's the best way for people to, to learn more about you? Um, the book Bandersnatch is a book that's intended to inspire those who might think that they might like to do what the Inklings do. And so the book Bandersnatch is a good place to start. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dana, for your time. And we look forward to having you back on again. We really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Basecamp Live. You know, raising the next generation of young people isn't easy. 
but we'd like to offer you some opportunities to join your fellow travelers in this journey of ancient future education. Hey Kelly, you know what's really exciting? We just added to the website basecamplive.com a whole section that's uh, designed around getting the word out. It's called Start Here. If you're new, it tells you how to get fully subscribe to it. If you're a school leader, um, you can you can link on to your school website and kind of get updates every time we do a new show is released. It appears on the school website. That's kind of that's kind of exciting. And yeah. one of the things that I'm really excited about is this new climbers idea that we're putting together. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about yeah, that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just simply we want to hear stories. I mean, the, what, what I'm humbled by are the number of people literally around the globe who are saying there is a better way to raise the next generation and they're jumping in whatever their context is. And we want to know what you're doing and kind of how you discovered this. And we're just going to create some kind of smaller little vignettes of stories of people. And uh, so, yeah, info at BasecampLive.com. Let us know what your story is. Yeah, we don't have to do this alone. Info at BasecampLive.com. That sounds great. All right. Thanks for joining us and see you at the next episode. Well, welcome to Basecamp Live Backside. This is the part of the show when we just had too much good stuff to say that we couldn't stick in 23 minutes. And so we're still, we always cut the mic off and then we have some of the best conversations. So we thought Diana Glyer still uh, here with us. And we thought, let's explore a little bit more this idea of hospitality. And Dave, you had an interesting point you wanted to bring up. Well, uh, somewhat has been a couple of years ago, the Benedict Option came out, which came out, which was often cited as a, sort of a, a central work for a few years there, and and we've taken it to heart, I think, a bit in the classical Christian movement. We're, of course, cited in the book as, as one of the ways to build Christian community. Um, and and I just, um, with what Diana was talking about, I thought that would be a good area to explore yeah. with her on building Christian community among, you know, um, in ways other than maybe Bible studies. I mean, right. doing things like this. Because like so. I think we all secretly want to be a part of the Inklings, besides <laughs> beside the good pub food. Like, really, what we want to be a part of some a robust, meaningful group. And again, it, it, I think that this sort of hallmark, if I can use that simplistic way of looking at it, is that these are just good buddies hanging out. But in fact, they actually were very different from each other and probably really bugged each other a whole lot at times. So talk more... <laughs> When um, when Lewis and Tolkien first met, it was really very a very inauspicious occasion, right? Tolkien never even mentions their first meeting because he was so unimpressed with mm. Lewis. And Lewis, in his uh, journal that night, writes that uh, Tolkien was a pale, fluent little fellow, not too bad, but needs a good smack. And so they were not impressed with one another at all at the start, and yet their friendship became one of the most important literary friendships in literary history, I believe, mm. and, and really remarkable. So remarkable in so many ways, but one of them is simply because of the ways that they were so different. Now, they became friends in an interesting way. They became friends because they became part of a book club. Uh, they studied Icelandic sagas through a group called the Kolbiters. They started the group. They didn't like each other. By the end, because they were studying texts together, they actually became very close. And this is an illustration of something that Lewis talks about in his book, The Four Loves. Do you remember where he says that people who are romantically interested in one another look at one another, but friendship, the essence of friendship, standing side by side, looking in the same direction together. Mm. And so that's an exciting model for us, for those who are of us who are thinking, I just want a little bit of what it was that they had. How could I be a little bit more like an inkling? And realizing that this group started because uh, this larger friendship started, this larger 
larger context for their work started because they were part of a book club together and they were studying things together. And then after that book club folded, they made a very, very simple commitment. And that commitment was to get together for conversation and lunch one day a week. So remind us of, of how they were different um, other than, I guess, Tolkien thought Lewis looked a little scrawny or something. But I mean, what? <laughs> what? They, I mean, because were... <laughs> early on when they first met, Lewis wasn't even a believer. I mean, he was, no. he, this wasn't even part of his life. Well, there are a number of things that were very different about them, right? So they were very different in personality. Lewis was sort of a loud, robust, uh, you know, um, uh, all-in kind of guy. Uh, kind of, a, He functioned as a pretty typical extrovert. Tolkien was very quiet, very gentle, very reserved. The kind of person who would sit and kind of take everything in uh, and comment on it later. They were very different in their academic training, right? So Tolkien was a philologist, that is someone who loves language and linguistics. That was his passion, while Lewis was very interested in uh, literature, literary study uh, from all different cultures. They were different in faith. As you say, Lewis wasn't a believer at the time when they first met. And Tolkien had been a really committed Christian from childhood hmm. and worried actually uh, about Lewis and Lewis's soul all his life. Uh, Tolkien was very influence, influential in Lewis's conversion to the faith. And that's a remarkable story in and of itself. But they're different personalities, different interests, different training, different spiritual uh, trajectories. Lewis is Irish, and that also was a bit of a, a point of tension mm. between them, right? So all of these kinds of differences, and yet they formed this friendship where they really learned to respect one another, uh, one another's ideas. And so one way to look at what is so important about that friendship is that they have very different points of view, but a passion for the same kinds of issues. And I think that that's really the essence of great intellectual hospitality. I want to be partnering with people who are passionate about the same issues, but who bring a different point of view than my own, yeah. because that's how I'm actually going to be able to grow and get things done and figure out what I'm missing and, and help just even sometimes because of different skill sets, uh, different um, uh, abilities and, and insights. Mm. Yeah. I think about conversations I've had over the years with parents who have, who have uh, pleaded and conjoled to to please put their child in the other classroom and because their friends are in the other classroom right. instead of yeah. and then they come yeah. back you know and, and we don't do that and then we come back they come back a month later and say I am so thankful because my son or my daughter has had this amazing experience they've got these new friends and they've learned to kind of leverage the differences that are in there which is really quite spectacular as you're talking about so we should we should be not so quick to judge maybe some of our best friends are the ones that we are not attracted to right off the bat because they're so different so. and you know one question i would have for you dan is that obviously there's some ingredients that were working at work here in this relationship between tolkien and lewis and i think maybe we could parallel some of those in our own lives in the sense that um we know that the differences between them were actually assets in this context. But what, right. what worked in their friendship? I mean, many of us have friends that we get together and have lunch with. Few of us write The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> now, obviously, yeah. there may be some talent and other yeah. factors there, but just in terms of the greatness of this arrangement, uh, in pursuit of greatness here, how, what do you think we uh, can look to as a lesson from their experience together? 
I wonder, uh, let me ask you this question. Have you ever read The Silmarillion? Parts of it. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's quite a work. It's, it's a little fragmented. Uh, read, certain short stories in it are, are quite good. Right, so The Silmarillion is Tolkien's story about the earlier age of Middle-earth, mm -hmm. and he wrote that, and then his son kind of tried to pull together the different fragments of that and create a cohesive manuscript or a cohesive narrative with that. But even with all that effort to try to pull together these fragments, most people who read that say, I just am not really engaged. It doesn't really speak to me. The Silmarillion is an example of what Tolkien was capable of when he was all by mm. himself, <laughs> when he was living in his own world, when he was writing late at night at his desk, which was in the garage of his home. That's the sort of thing that he was capable of when he was left to his own devices. Hmm. When he started bringing stories to the Inklings, and then the Inklings would say, no, I want to know more about this, or hey, tell me more about that. Then his writing started to change. One of the changes that we know is that Lewis said that the early drafts of The Lord of the Rings had too much dialogue and not enough action. In other words, Lewis said, people are just sitting around talking. They're not actually doing anything. Mm. So Tolkien said, okay, took that to heart, cut the dialogue by at least half and increased the adventure story. Mm. Uh, at one point, this is one of my favorite stories about the Inklings. Uh, Tolkien went to an Inklings meeting and he said, I'm done. I'm absolutely bored to death with the Lord of the Rings. I'm, I'm quitting. And when the Inklings asked him why, asked him to tell me more, uh, he said, well, there's just nothing, there's nothing to say here in this book. So Lewis got together with him and said, hobbits are only interesting when they're in unhobbit-like situations. Hmm. So Tolkien's walking home and he's thinking to himself, hobbits are only interesting when they're in unhobbit-like situations. And that night, he introduces the character of the Black Riders into oh. Lord of the Rings story. Wow. Now, what could be less Hobbit-like than a Black <laughs> Rider on a big Black horse, mm. right? And that changes the nature, the texture of that yes. entire tale. Before mm. that, Lord of the Rings was a little bit more like the Hobbit, but now it becomes epic. And mm. it becomes epic because his friends said, this isn't going anywhere. You really need to do something different. You need to ramp up the drama. And Tolkien was able to respond to that. Mm. So the point here is that creative people draw out of one another brand new things when they're willing to invest time in one another, really listening and then helping to shape and suggest the direction of the work that we do. Wow. Wow. Yes, that is amazing. I still want to have more lunch to you, Dave, so maybe I can write a book someday. Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> You're going to have to send somebody better than me for that. But no, I'm just saying, but, but to your is... point, it's just amazing how those, you're right, these simple, honest comments can make an absolutely different book. And I, I'm still struck, Diana, by your comment earlier, and in in, in we were talking that, I mean, we wouldn't be here, to, we wouldn't be having this interview. These, these books wouldn't exist, or it would be some, you know, PhD study at Oxford dug up some old guy named Tolkien and found this book he started and that was about as far as it got. I mean, we would never know. And I, this. Yeah. I wonder if a big part of it wasn't the sense of purpose. I mean, they got together as friends and as you said, they stood shoulder to shoulder instead of um, face to face. But they had something to look at that was purposeful. Mm. That's right. 
I think that I think that that's true. But I also think that there's a little bit of inherent accountability when someone says what you're doing matters. And next week, I want to see more of it. Right. It's really yeah. hard for us to keep that alive on our own. We really need somebody who's out there who says, you know, this this is really important. Don't don't give this up. You have to keep going. I really care about it. Uh, not just you, but the work itself has value. But we get that from one another if we're willing to take the risk that Lewis and Tolkien mm. took of sharing what we're working on with each other. And so, I don't know, do you have a manuscript in a drawer somewhere? Do you have a Dave sonnet does. sequence <laughs> that you've been working on? Do you have a little tiny idea for a story that just might be fun? Mm. And who is it who's out there who says, no, I want you to do that. Please pursue that. And mm. I'll be here for lunch on Wednesday. And I want to see how far you've gotten with right. it. Boy, what a joy to talk to you. This is <laughs> this is very Dave. inspiring. And <laughs> well, beyond that, it, I, I think Christian community would be well off to um, to take a page out of the Lewis and Tolkien Absolutely. backstory. Yes. Which You're is, on the backside. So, yes. Thank you for uh, staying along with us, Diana. And thank you for reminding us again, or telling us really a story that none of us knew. So uh, we, uh, we're, we're encouraged and look forward to future discoveries that you make. So uh, thank you for your time. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. <laughs>